How did a former Catholic schoolgirl and high school valedictorian from a working class family become the physician of a notorious crime boss and the mistress of another mafioso? Buckle on up as we are about to hear this incredible story from the cardiologist they call the Dr. Broad. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show became the physician to the notorious crime boss, Raymond Patriarcher, who ran the New England Mafia for decades. She also became the mistress of another mafioso. We are about to hear a one-of-a-kind exclusive story of controversy, heartbreak, political activism, and ultimately survival. She is known as the Dr. Broad, which is also the title of her book, which gives you play-by-play -play details of her fateful journey in the inner circle of mafia life. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Dr. Barbara H. Roberts. Thank you for having me, Eli. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my lurid past. Well, I'm not so sure it's so lurid because in that book tells me a story of a very unique, very heart-loving sort of soulful individual. So we're going to get into that story a little bit and take us through the early years growing up as Barbara Roberts as a devout Catholic virgin who was the valedictorian of her high school class and wanted to be a nun. Yes. You know, if you were to take a creative writing course and you were assigned to invent a character who would be the least likely person in the world to have any involvement with the mafia, you might come up with someone whose background was like mine. Because I was raised as the oldest of 10 children in a devout Catholic family. My parents were part of the Catholic worker movement, which was founded by the radical Catholic pacifist Dorothy Day. And we were raised to be saints, preferably martyrs, because if you died for your faith, you went straight to heaven, you avoided purgatory, and you avoided hell no matter how bad you had been during your life. Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> yes, it was a good deal, but you, you had to die to get there. Not <laughs> the such a good deal. Death. <laughs> Uh, it was a frigid day in December of 1980 when you decided to be the physician of the most notorious mob boss in all of New England. What made you decide to take on the challenge knowing full well that would be some sort of consequences by your mere association with a crime boss? Right. Well, December 4th was actually the first time I met Raymond, but I had agreed to become his physician uh, about a month or so before. What happened was... I had moved to Rhode Island in 1977 and opened a private practice in cardiology. And I was the first female adult cardiologist in Rhode Island. And I made friends with a cardiac surgeon because cardiologists are, are dependent on referrals from other physicians. And his name was Dr. Robert Ndalia. And I met his best friend who was 
the preeminent criminal defense attorney in Rhode Island, a man by the name of Jack Cicilline, when Jack's father had a massive heart attack. And during the six weeks that Jack's father was in the hospital, I met not only Jack and his wife and his children and his siblings, but I met many of his friends, among whom was Raymond Jr. Patriarcha. And Junior told me he was very unhappy with the care his father was getting and asked me if I would take on his father as a patient. And I said, yes. Well, you must have had, I assume, some level of ambivalence because you have a couple of kids at the time. As you say, you know, a lot of what you do has to be referred by other doctors. I don't know if they call them primary physicians in that day, but of course, a lot of the primary physicians are going to refer over to a cardiologist. So what was the thinking in terms of you saying, my role is to take care of a patient. I, I have to just look at him as a patient. And that's my primary thing. You know, when you graduate from medical school, you take a Hippocratic oath. And central to the Hippocratic oath are two things. Number one, I will do no harm. And number two, I will put my patient's welfare ahead of my own. Not just mm. my patients who don't have a felony mm. record, not just my patients who aren't facing any criminal charges. Any patient who entrusts his or her heart to my care, I will put their interests ahead of my own. And when Raymond Jr. asked me to see his father as a patient, as far as I knew, he was living quietly at home with his second wife, his first wife having died, and he wasn't facing any criminal charges that I or anyone else at the time knew about, at least outside of law enforcement. And I knew because you couldn't grow up in New England, uh, in the Northeast of the United States in the 1950s and 60s as I did without knowing who Raymond Patriarch was because he was always being called to testify in front of con congressional committees. Uh, and I knew that, you know, he'd been arrested and served some time in jail. But again, by the time I was asked to see him, he was in his 70s. And I knew that he had been diabetic since the 1940s. And I knew that he had had a heart attack in the 1960s, and we're now talking 1980. In fact, when he had his heart attack in the 1960s, he was seen in consultation by Dr. Paul Dudley White, who at that time was the most famous cardiologist in the country. He actually consulted on President Dwight D. Eisenhower when Eisenhower had his heart attack. And knowing as I did that both diabetes and coronary artery disease tend to be progressive disorders, I knew that he must be quite sick. I knew that he must have a lot of debility, but I had never met him. And I agreed to become his physician. And I said to his son, Raymond Jr., I said, Raymond, just call my office and set up an appointment, which he did. But before that appointment could take place, Raymond Sr. was admitted to another hospital where I didn't have admitting privileges with a gangrenous toe that required amputation. And I said to Raymond Jr., no problem. When your dad gets discharged from that hospitalization, just call me and we'll reschedule his appointment. But within a few days of being discharged from the hospital after having a toe amputated, while he was eating dinner at home one night, two policemen showed up at his door and arrested him on charges of accessory and conspiracy to murder based on the word of an informant. Now, I happened to be at his lawyer, Jack Cicilline's office that night, because Jack and his brother were representing me in a custody dispute that had been brought by the father of my youngest child, whom I had never married. But he was suing me for common law divorce, palimony, and custody of our four-year-old daughter 
on the grounds that I was an unfit mother. And I was in Jack's office, although Jack wasn't there at the time, his brother was, when one of Raymond Jr.'s friends came bursting into the office, pale as a ghost, saying they just arrested Senior and they took him to the Situate State Police Barracks. And Rita and Raymond Jr. really wants one of his doctors to check him because he was so upset that even though he took his insulin, he didn't finish dinner and he forgot his nitroglycerin. And we can't reach any of his doctors. And I said, well, let me try because I knew some numbers where I might be able to reach them, but I couldn't reach them anyway. And Raymond's friend, Maddie, kept insisting, you know, they really want a doctor to go check him. And in my mind, I had already agreed to be his physician. So I finally said, well, if we can't find anybody else, I'll go and check him. So that's how it began. Well, it's a powerful lesson that you put your patient before yourself. And it's a great lesson in life, because if we all thought that way, <laughs> but our neighbors and our friends and uh, even strangers, you know, not necessarily before even before ourselves, but if we, as like in the Bible says, you know, we treat thy neighbor as thyself, we'd have a pretty uh, good world out there, wouldn't we? Yes, we would. Yeah. So I, I commend you for uh, having that philosophy. Uh, I think that's pretty amazing. So how did you save uh, Raymond Patriarcher's life? And how did he show his gratitude? I went up there fully expecting that I would meet him, check him over, find that he was fine, and call Raymond and say, your dad is okay, please tell Rita he's going to be fine. You know, I was driven to the Situate State Police Barracks, and I'm thinking that I'll go in and it'll, it'll be like a hushed area and people will be talking in low voices. And I get there, and it's more like a rowdy tailgate party at a college homecoming <laughs> weekend. Everybody's talking at the top of their voices and laughing, and Jack is saying, introducing me to all these law enforcement people, this is Dr. Barbara Roberts, she's Raymond's cardiologist, and Raymond was nowhere to be seen. And Jack told me that Raymond was in a room, a private room at the Situate State Police Barracks with Major Lionel Benjamin, who was the second in command of the, of the Rhode Island State Police. So Jack went in and told Raymond Sr. that Junior and Rita had wanted him to be checked by a cardiologist that he was supposed to be seeing shortly. And so I went into the room and, you know, this was about seven years after the first Godfather movie came out. So, you know, what do you think when you know you're about to meet an alleged Don of the mafia in your mind, you, you can't help help having an image of someone like Marlon Brando. right? Yeah, so <laughs> with the cotton in the balls in their mouth. <laughs> I walk in the room and the first thing I thought when I saw him was, oh, my God, he's so tiny because he was, he was a, a tiny little elderly shriveled man. And the second thing I thought was, holy shice, this man is gonna have a cardiac arrest and I'll never be able to resuscitate him here because he was cyanotic, he was sweaty, his breathing was very labored. And when I took a history and asked him if he was having chest discomfort, he said, yes, he was. And it had been going on for about two hours. And then I listened to him and I became even more alarmed because his pulse was highly erratic. And an erratic pulse in someone who's had a prolonged angina attack can be a harbinger of sudden cardiac death. So someone went back to his house and brought his nitroglycerin. We gave him nitroglycerin, but he didn't take the discomfort away. And I said to um, Major Benjamin, this man has to be admitted to the hospital. He said, oh, no, no, he can't go to the hospital. He's just charged with a you know, capital offense. 
And I kept insisting that if he weren't admitted, he could well die. So finally he said, well, call Dr. Walter Stone, uh, not Dr. Colonel Walter Stone. Colonel Stone was the head of the Rhode Island State Police. So I called Colonel Stone and I told him my findings. He said the same thing, no way, no way is this man gonna go to the hospital. And I kept insisting and telling him he was likely to die. And finally he said, well, call the Rhode Island State Police Surgeon. And gave me the name and number. So I called the gentleman and I explained the results of my history and physical exam. He said, oh, you're absolutely right, Dr. Roberts. He needs to go to the hospital immediately. So I called Colonel Stone back and he said, well, I want him to go to Fatima Hospital because that's the only place where we can keep him under 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week armed guard. I said, that's not true, Colonel Stone. I said, remember Anthony Sfamini? Anthony Sfamini, coincidentally, was another client of Jack Cicilline's who, while he was out on parole, was shot in the head, rolled up in a rug, put in the trunk of the car and left for death. Oh, boy. But he was found, and he was taken to the Miriam Hospital, where I practiced, and he was resuscitated, and he was kept under 24-hour day armed guard. So, and I knew Colonel Stone knew about this case. So when I called him out on his false statement, he had to give in. So Raymond and I were put in the back seat of a state police cruiser with you know an armed guard sitting next to us, an armed guard in front, and we took off through the night, and he was admitted to the Miriam Hospital for what turned out to be a six-week hospitalization. When they first saw you and you didn't fit the exact image of what they would have thought a cardiologist should look like, you're female, you're rather short, rather young, what was their reaction to you? And again, how did they show their gratitude later on for the keeping him out of jail and saving well, his life? It became apparent to me within a few days that putting Raymond on trial would be tantamount to a sentence of death because he had easily provocable angina, you know, the chest discomfort people get when their heart is starved for oxygen. How do I know he wasn't faking? It's very easy, because when someone is having true angina, they get characteristic changes in their electrocardiogram. And many, and many times he was hooked up to a cardiac monitor, and we could see the characteristic changes in his EKG when he developed angina. And he, he, his angina could be provoked by just talking about the charges against him. It could be provoked by him walking across the room. He was extremely debilitated, but he had been trying to hide the extent of his disability from his family and associates. He had had diabetes for so long that he had severe neuropathy, the damage that diabetes does to the nerves, to the point where his hands were all uh, atrophic and wasted. He, was, he couldn't even button his own shirt. Rita had to dress him. He couldn't cut up his own food. Rita had to cut his food so he could eat. But he was extraordinarily grateful because once I went to bat for him and was publicly identified as his physician, both the federal prosecutors, the state prosecutors, the police, the Providence Journal, all tried to make me out to be someone who was lying about the extent of his disability for whatever reason. And sure. so the states and the feds hired their own cardiologists to evaluate him, and not one of them took issue with anything I said about his health. So wow. Raymond was extremely grateful. He told me on more than one occasion, I know you saved my life. I couldn't love you more if you were my own daughter. No, that's powerful. Do you believe you were placed in this position as his physician? so you could learn some important life lessons that you can now share with our listeners? 
Although I was raised a devout Catholic, I've been an atheist now for many years. Although I do credit my Catholic upbringing with giving me the moral fortitude to do what I know to be right, even though I know I'm going to get stomped on for it. And I was, <laughs> I was stomped on, believe me. Everything I did made it into the newspapers. When, when my custody battle finally came to trial, that was written in the newspapers. When I was attacked by a masked man in a cemetery wearing nothing but a ski mask and sneakers, that made it into the newspapers, including my name and home address. And early day wokeness. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know why this happened to me, but certainly by surviving this traumatic period of my life, I think it did make me stronger. And for that, I'm grateful. Hmm. So how were you labeled as the doctor broad and how accurate or inaccurate was that label back then, uh, as well as currently? That's a funny story. As I said, about three days into Raymond's hospitalization, when I would, had been publicly identified as Raymond's physician, I got a call from a young man that I had dated briefly when I first moved to Rhode Island. And even when we stopped dating, uh, we remained friends. And he called me and he said, Doc, they all called me Doc. I said, what? He said, you want to hear a funny story? I said, sure. He said, remember my friend so-and-so? I said, yeah, I remember him. He said, he called me yesterday and he said, hey, Vinny. Remember that Dr. Broad you used to date? <laughs> the old man's doctor now. And I thought that was hilarious. Because to me, a broad was a woman with large breasts and small frontal lobes of the brain. And I had just the opposite. At least I'm sure I didn't have large breasts. <laughs> so I didn't take offense. And then uh, a couple months later, the Providence Journal uh, wrote a big article about me in the Sunday Magazine Supplement entitled, Who is the Real Dr. Roberts? And that Sunday morning, I was making hospital rounds. And I, as I was approaching the nurse's station on the fourth floor, I heard two nurses talking. And one said to the other, did you read the article about Dr. Roberts in the paper today? And her friend said, nah, I'm going to wait for the movie. <laughs> and that was the first time I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe my story would be of interest to a lot of people. And so starting in about the year 2000, I started writing my memoir. And it was clear to me from the very beginning that the title was going to be The Doctor Broad. Yeah, great title, I tell you that. And, and I couldn't put the book down. It's uh, riveting because, I mean, let's face it, not too many of us have a situation where we are affiliated with not only a mobster, but a mob boss, you know, ran the entire region. So that's really an incredible story that you share with us. And so one of the things that I'm uh, interested in is whatever happened with Raymond Patriarcher and his son, and do you have any connection currently to any of those interesting characters yeah. from uh, way back when? Raymond died on July 11th, 1984, uh, which was about three and a half years into my period as his physician. He had a sudden cardiac arrest from which he couldn't be resuscitated. And... Raymond Jr. is still alive. We are still friends. In fact, he agreed to let me use several private family photographs to um, include in the book. Yeah, I saw, I saw the photographs in the book. They're pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, he's a real estate developer. He lives in Rhode Island still with his wife. He has one son who's an adult now. And we, we're still friends, as I said. Well, I've gotten to know you 
And no pun intended, but you really have a large heart. You're a fantastic person. So I'm not at all surprised that you would take on the challenge that you took on because you wanted to live up to the Hippocratic Oath and make sure that you take care of others uh, before you even take care of yourself. So I want to commend you for having that kind of philosophy in life. What would you like to share with our readers before we go? What I would like to share, particularly with women, is to decide you're going to be a survivor. Don't give up on your dreams. Work hard, make your dreams come to fruition, and survive. That's a great lesson, I'll tell you that. And how could people learn more about Barbara Roberts and her journey? And also about Crime Town. If, if your listeners don't know, Crime Town was a very popular podcast. And I was in season one, episode 11 of Crime Town. And that was the first time I spoke publicly about those years. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, your book is, again, a book that is impossible to put down. It's called The Doctor Broad. I suggest anybody listening here today go out and get that copy. It's a page turner, I'll tell you that, whether you pick it up at your local bookstore, Barnes and Nobles, or get it on Amazon, go out and get a copy. Thank you so much, Barbara, for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Eli. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.